Story number one. They came from the sea. Written by Bob Crusher. Journal of Ichund, the clan of Althend. Three of winter, year 1011, after Apotheosis. They came from the sea. Their ships were nothing like I'd ever seen. It spewed sparks and smoke and bore neither oars nor mast. A strange magic must have compelled it. As it drew closer to port, my mother, who was a forest elf, complained of the terrible noise emanating from its bowels. Equally strange were the folk that crewed it. Men, they called themselves. They were sickest creatures with flat faces and dour frowns. My mother said that they looked like elves who had been run over by a cart. After mooring themselves, one of the men, who I presume to be the captain, due to him being the only man not covered in black soot, came ashore. He was quick to seek out a portmaster. The two spoke in earnest before the captain gathered his nailers. No more than a dozen men, and set off into the city, heading towards the palace. Peculiar creatures. 59 of winter, year 1011, after Apotheosis. I almost didn't make the connection when I received a letter from my cousin, the lighthouse keeper in the east. She wrote of a grand fleet gathered along the shore. Many saucer ships made up of their number, but together they spewed enough black smoke to blot out the suns. Make no mistake, she told me we were to be invaded, and I knew by whom. The very night I bought an officer's commission at the garrison, my mother begged me not to, but I knew I must. War was coming, and I refused to stand idle. 61 of winter, year 1011, after Apotheosis. I have not been able to write for some time. Our army has been moving at breakneck pace towards the east. As we go, we levy every able-bodied elf that we come across. Despite only being a junior officer, I now have nearly a hundred soldiers under my command. Most are conscripted peasants, but I also control a small corps of sorcerers and even a destiny teller. Our goal is to reach the eastern shore before the men can make the landfall. I fear we are already too late. I spoke to my destiny teller about the future of the eastern provinces, but she was tight-lipped even under direct order. It has been three days since I last received a letter from my cousin. 64 of winter, year 1011, after Apotheosis. This morning our scouts spotted refugees. We were too slow. They spoke of war. The capital of the east, the stalwart city of Valhide, had been sacked. In a matter of hours, the walls had been toppled, and men had poured into the streets. All those that could fled, those who did not, died. It was an unnerving story. When I was young, my mother told me tales of courage and strength of the warriors of Valhide during the times of old. For even the apotheosis, dragons and ogres could not best him. But men could. 66 of winter, year 1011, after Apotheosis. This morning I found our destiny teller dead. She cut her own throat with a dagger. I hid the body and told my soldiers that she deserted. They didn't need to know, especially before their first encounter with man. We were to meet the men at the edge of the arbor, the ancient and vast forest that separates the capital from the east. Trees older than most clans towered above our line. By noon, our scouts had spotted the armies of man. They marched across the plains in the east in a direction that would take them straight to the capital. Behind them, a dozen cities burned and ran red with blood. 
we were all that stood between them and the central provinces. When I first saw them caressing the horizon, I was surprised. They wore uniforms. Every man wore the same khaki garb and a tin helmet atop their head. Never had I seen such a conformity in an army. Then there were the weapons, called rifles. I'd been told of them by the refugees we'd met. Their premise was based on the long-forgotten art of alchemy, projectiles powered by unstable alchemical reactions. It was a crude concept sharpened to a razor edge. The worst part was that any fool could wield one with a deadly efficiency. No matter, the field marshal Yultrud told us, like all the foes before them, man's armies would be broken under our might. She ordered our sappers to construct palisades at the mouth of the Yarba and for the bulk of our force to form behind them. In theory, the men's rifles' fire would be stopped by the palisades, and they'd be forced to fight us with their bayonets, where we would best them in the resulting melee. Before the war horn was sounded, I spoke to the field marshal and told her that if the men had bested the walls of Helhide, then her palisade would fare no better. Although she assured me her plan was sound, on account of her numerical advantage, I requested to be placed in reserve. It's a decision I credit with saving my life and the lives of those under me. I am no coward, but I concede and I felt a great fear as the men sounded the bugle call and marked the commencement of their attack. I recalled hearing the distant thunder from far behind the battle lines. At the sound, a very forest elf in sight clutching their ears with apparent pain. A moment later, the skies above us shattered. Artillery. Field Marshal Yultrud did not count on the accuracy of the barrage, nor its intensity. She paid with her life. I estimated that one in every ten soldiers was killed in the initial bombardment alone. When what was left of us rallied, we found the battleground was no longer the arbor, but a crater pocked wasteland in such a desolate environment the men insulted. We were reduced even further under the relentless volley of fire from their rivalmen, who, with the palisades pulverized, refused to commit to melee. I was not surprised when I heard the vice marshal call to order to retreat. In fact, I was relieved. Twenty spring, year 1011, after apotheosis. Much has changed since our first encounter with the men. We learned that to face them on the field under the gaze of the guns would be madness. So we took to the trees. As the enemy army marches through the arbor, we make them pay for every step taken. We ambush their scouts, attack their camps at night, and lay booby traps in their patrols. In the dense forest, their rifles become unwieldy, and the artillery is obscured by the canopy. The forest elves amongst us are particularly adept in this form of combat. Amongst the glades of the arbor, the elegance matches that of a dancer. I've seen dozens of men's fall to the well-placed arrows. These tactics are effective, but taxing. The men have struggled to gain a foothold, but are beginning to learn. Rather than traverse the tangles of the arbor, they use a weapon that spews fire like a dragon to burn through it. What's more, the men can communicate across great distances. On several occasions, men have spoken into a gadget, and their comrades from far away have come to their aid. Forest owls, with the hearing being what it is, can often hear these communications are made. Perhaps, in combination with a translation spell, this could prove exploitable. Still, even with all their tricks and this rate, they will not prevail. 
The vice marshal tells me that man's armies are spread thin. Reports from the marshals across the continent indicate that the men are advancing rapidly in every direction at once at no reserves. Our armies grow every day while theirs are whittled away by attrition. This is not the sort of war I thought I'd be fighting, but I swear that I'll see it through. 39 of Spring, Year 1011, After Apotheosis A high elf from the capital arrived at our camp today. He looked so very out of place walking amongst the battle-weary soldiers in his billowing white gown. He had come to speak to me. He said that he had read my reports on man's methods of communication and told me that this information had been used by the elves on other fronts to great effect. Because of this, he'd come to offer me a junior position in a spy ring. I was not about to cross a high elf, so I accepted. I leave for the capital tomorrow. My soldiers wish me a somber goodbye, and we shared a drink. I think they resent me. After all, they can't leave. 42 of Spring, Year 1011, After Apotheosis I write from my chambers in the palace court. Never have I felt linens this fine. My parents were overjoyed to see me arrive home safely, but I had little time for reunions, for there is work to be done. The high elf I met in the arbor had become my mentor. His name was Dohart and can claim his lineage to before the apotheosis. He's a good teacher, but strict. I've learned a great deal under him. Here in the court I've received news from other fronts. Our lad, our forces are winning despite man's technological advances. Their tactics are foolish at best and suicidal at worst. Man's supply lines are becoming increasingly unwieldy, and the front line is so large that our armies have broken through at several points. Despite this, their morale remains high, and they fight fiercely, often to the man. On the sea, however, man fares better. Since the beginning of the invasion, their navy has remained moored at the beached head that they landed at. Our own navy has made several attempts to dislodge them and to bring an early end to the war. But man's flagship, a steel-hulled dreadnought named the Spirit of Erdani, has sent many elvish sailors to an early grave. Nonetheless, at this rate, all my training will be for naught. Fifty Spring, Year 1011, After Apotheosis Though Hart is dead. Men killed him where he lay last night. Many others met the same fate. Under moonlight, a team of parachutists jumped from balloon straight into the palace court itself. The watch captain claims that there was no more than four dozen. Based on the damage that they dealt, I'd have guessed there were an army had have landed. These men were of a different caliber than those that fought in Arbor. They were both better equipped and better trained. They bore both rifle and saber. Their rifles were of an uncommon sort, or they had machining so intricate that they loaded themselves. The result was that the men could shoot faster than a battle line in volley fire, and if an elf managed to close the distance with them, they met bronze with steel in an aftermath of a skirmish. I saw many shattered blades, none steel. Their objective was unclear. Most of the men had died in the fighting, but some had fled into the docks and escaped in stolen boats. The watch captain claims that they were attempting to decapitate our command, or perhaps even to assassinate the godhead. But I have my doubts. I found the court cartographer's chambers had been ransacked with a great deal of maps missing. With Dohart and his peers dead, I have inherited the provisional command of the spiring. It is a great responsibility, but I intend to do it justice.
78 Spring, year 1011, after apotheosis. The Grand Marshal spoke to me today. He says that man Franks have finally collapsed last night. What was left of their forces in the arbor made a hasty retreat across the eastern provinces. The Marshal asserts that they realized the risk of encirclement and withdrew to protect their supply lines. It's a sound analysis, but I sense something is wrong. Nevertheless, this is an opportunity. Amongst the confusion of the mass withdrawal, I will see a plan of mine carried out. A spy will be sent to the lands of man. Even if we drive man back to the sea, we must understand why they first came here. Only by knowing our enemy can we truly defeat them. 1 of Summer, Year 1011, After Apotheosis A scout in the front sent urgent word to the court last night. Her message found its way into my hands. She claims that she's seen an enormous convoy of motor carriages driving away from the front. After tracking them as far as the eastern province, she suspects that they are heading for Man's Beachhead. Their cargo remains a mystery. Using this information, as well as some borrowed maps, I determined the carriages were likely coming from the mountaintop of Uthod, the last city to be seized by Man. Curiously, its capture coincides with the collapse of Man's flanks and the palace raid. The three are clearly connected. Tonight, I'll implore the Grand Marshal to recapture Othod. My spy cannot arrive in the land of man sooner. Last I heard was that she'd stowed away on the homeward-bound supply vessel. May the Godhead watch over her. Six of Summer, Year 1011, After Apotheosis The Grand Marshal led an attack on Uthod. Already, the wounded have started to arrive back in the court. I saw one soldier arrive in the capital upon a drawn carriage, missing both legs. I stopped him and asked to offer Othod. He told me the men fought with a ferocity he had not seen before. Even worse, they brought a terrible new weapon to bear. It was a sort of artillery piece made of neither bronze nor steel that looked entirely dissimilar from other such weapons. He told me that it fired a shell so potent that it set the air behind it aflame. My suspicions have been confirmed. To commit such a weapon to Uthod suggests that the collapse of their flank was a planned withdrawal with the goal of reducing the front line to what was necessary to hold Uthod. Uthod must be taken at all costs. 8th of Summer, Year 1011, After Apotheosis My spy has arrived in the land of man. She wrote that the port city she arrived in was larger than even the great river of city of Marthium. However, the skies have been blotted out by soot so thick that there is no difference between day and night. Surely the men know that if we do not defeat them, their own hubris would. Nature must be kept in a careful balance, a balance that man has tipped. My spine tells me of motor carriages from Uthod have made their way into the curiously well-defended part of the city. She will try and sneak into the first opportunity. What will she find? 25 of Summer, Year 1011, After Apotheosis The Grand Marshal agreed to my conclusions and agreed to fully commit to taking Uthod. The conventional attack would not suffice, so we sought the assistance of the reclusive sorcerers of Mount Scregmar. After long negotiations, our diplomats convinced them to revoke their vows of pacifism to defeat man. With their most ancient spells, all created before Apotheosis, the sorcerers conjured a great ice storm over Uthod that raged for three days and three nights. The defenders froze where they stood. Till when the storm had passed and all was quiet, 
Our armies marched into Uthod, came under fire from a strange cannon that had vaporized so many soldiers in our initial attack. Clearly, it was built of an entirely different standard than the rest of the man's inventions. However, without protection, the weapon was destroyed by a sorcerer's well-placed spell. Uthod was ours. I will travel there personally and see what can be learnt. 33 of summer, year 1011, after Apotheosis, man was doing something in Uthod. While they occupied the city, man had raised Uthod's renowned temple district to the ground and dug a massive quarry in its place. While soldiers were fighting and dying on the battlements, miners had been digging this. Much of the equipment in the quarry, some of men still frozen to them, boasted a degree of complexity similar to the strange cannon. There is much to be learnt, but what? The Grand Marshal tells me that while I was travelling, the armies of man began a full retreat to the ocean. He asserts that retaking Uthod was a nail in their coffin, and that the war was won. All thanks to me. He and his officers were hosting a great feast, with me as the guest of honour, in celebration. The optimism was commendable, but foolish. If we did not know why man first came here, how can we know if we lost? This was far from over. 36 of summer, year 1011, after Apotheosis, my spy has written to me with unsettling news. She gained access to a well-defended part of Man City through the labyrinth sewer system that runs beneath it. Inside, she found a massive structure of complex design and incomprehensible purpose. There are unmistakable similarities between the descriptions and the mining equipment that the cannon found in Yunthod. What's more, the motor carriages she was tracking were loaded into the structure. My spy's next move will be to infiltrate the structure to learn what secrets lie within. I will caution her against it, for I fear for her safety. But in truth, I too desire to learn what secrets of man. 41 of Summer, Year 1011, After Apotheosis This morning man's mighty flagship, the Spirit of Iridani, was spotted steaming homeward into the ocean. With her gone, the last men have been expelled from the continent. There was a celebration across the continent tonight. My clan and I were invited to the court to feast with the council. I was honored with many awards for being, as they claimed, a war hero. I appeared grateful so as to not shame my clan, but their hubris irked me. After the feast, the chair of the high council spoke to me in private. She told me that she wanted me to hold the position of spy master permanently. Perhaps it was the wine, but I decided to try my luck and told her that I would on the condition that she allowed me to attempt to uncover man's true motives. For the moment I thought that I had overstepped, she agreed. I am now the spy master for all the realms. 44th of Summer, Year 1011, After Apotheosis A letter from my spy has arrived. Despite my cautions, my spy snuck into the structure under cover of night. The interior, like that exterior, was unlike anything she'd ever seen before. The most peculiar aspect was that there were floors where walls should be, such as to traverse the structure she had to walk on the walls. What's more, much of the structure was abandoned and in the advanced state of disrepair. Only one space deep inside the structure was occupied. There she found men handling a strange mineral, presumably looted from Uthod, and working on a machine of sorts. Whatever technical process they were conducting was beyond her. Fearing capture, and whatever it was the men were doing, she escaped the structure and went to the ground. The mystery of the man thickens. Did they invade their land or whatever lay beneath Uthod? If that were true, did we stop them in time? What if man is building some sort of super weapon with what they looted? 
I refuse to leave the future of my people to fight. Action must be taken. 45 of summer, year 1011, after Apotheosis. This morning, I requested an audience with the High Council. I was going to ask them that we send our armies across the ocean to deliver a death blow to man before they could use whatever super weapon they were creating. That was the plan, but plans change. It was when I was walking to the palace that it happened. Around me, a seemingly random selection of elves clasped their ears and doubled over with apparent pain. I leapt to assist the nearest one where I saw was a forest elf. They were all forest elves. It became clear that every forest elf in sight, and as I would later learn in the realm, were all hearing the same incapacitating noise. It lasted minutes, but listening to their screams of agony, it felt like hours. When it finally stopped, those forest elves who could muster words reported hearing an excruciating noise, as if they were at the center of a great ocean storm. This could only be the doing of man and their sinister technologies. Once I was sure that the victims were looked after, I made my way to the palace. There I found a sorry sight. The chair of the High Council, a forest elf, as it happens, had died as a result of the terrible sound. Ah, that. I forgot about the previous plan and I proposed an unthinkable. For this, we must invoke the Godhead to put an end to man once and for all. The Godhead had been invoked thrice before. Each time was with great peril. The first was a millennium ago during the Apotheosis. The second was over eight centuries ago to unify the continent in the face of a Volgarva, the Usurper's Rebellion. The most recent was five centuries ago to slay she whose name must not be spoken, who sought revenge on the mortal realm. I feared the High Council would not see how grave the threat man posed truly was. In accordance with the ancient laws, the Godhead was only to be invoked should not doing so result in the destruction of the realm. However, with their colleague's lifeless body in hand, they understood all too well. We will invoke the Godhead. 56th of Summer, Year 1011, After Apotheosis I write this from the helm of the Navy's flagship, Dolmer's Wrath. Around me is a fleet, we are nearly a hundred vessels strong. Each crew of sailors seeking to do man what they did to us. Ahead of me is the land of man. Even from this distance their polluted air makes me sick. I know that they will not surrender. That they will fight to the last man. I am more than willing to let them. Behind me is an entire realm. It is filled with tens of thousands of elves who wish for us to right the greatest injustice of the century. We will not disappoint them. Above us is the Godhead. I have read historical accounts describing the Godhead, but having seen it in person, I can attest none do it justice. Be satisfied in knowing that between now and the day I die, I will never see something so awe-inspiring. We cannot lose. 58 of Summer, Year 1011, After Apotheosis I should have seen it sooner, but I didn't. Yesterday, the fleet, escorted by the Godhead, sailed into the lands of man. In the harbor of their greater port city, a fleet of ironclads awaited us. At the head of their formation was the fearsome Dreadnought, the spirit of Iridani. That most subtle of gestures, the Godhead turned Iridani's hull red-hot. In seconds, she melted into slag. With another gesture, the Godhead consigned the rest of man's fleet to a similar grave. Man's fleet had been reduced to molten slurry. Our sailors cheered, our greatest symbol of man's military might had been laid waste before their eyes. It was then that I noted something was awry. 
There were no screams, there were no sailors leaping from the burning decks, no guns firing in retaliation. In fact, there was no men seen at all. It was then that I heard the tremendous thunderclap, then a second, then a third. There must have been at least a dozen. I thought the first that man's coastal batteries had finally fired upon us, but their guns lay silent. The sound had come from above. At least a dozen spindly tubes adorned with superstructures had protrusions, each the size of the dreadnought, had descended from the clouds. Almost silently they streaked towards us from across the horizon, leaving smog roiling in their wake. I noted that they looked remarkably like the structure my spire had found in the heart of Man City. It was in that moment I understood what man had done. I thought back to my time fighting man in the glades of Arbor. I remember how, when under attack, men would use Gadget to call for help. The Gadget projected the user's voice in such a way that the forest owls, with their sensitive hearing, would hear the messages. Now I understood that terrible noise heard across the realm was not an attack, but a call for help. Man did not come across the sea. They came from across the stars. We were toying with powers far greater than we understood. Before I could make this clear to the Grand Admiral, the Godhead rose to face the vessels from the stars. With a flick of his wrists, the Godhead made the vessels grow red-hot. The vessels stayed true, continuing the bearing down on us at impossible speeds. At this, the Godhead raised all of its arms, invoking some ancient spell from prehistory, and compelled the vessels to burn white-hot. Still, they did not falter. Then, the unthinkable happened. I became temporarily blinded by the sudden explosion. Seconds later, a shockwave swept over us and violently rocked the fleet. With it came a thunderous retort of whatever weapon had been fired. When I regained my vision, I searched the skies with a godhead, but found nothing. It had been slain and nothing remained. The vessels from the stars soared over us and began to gain altitude until disappearing above the smog layer. The fleet was left unharmed, but we have sent an unmistakable message. Do not enter the land of man. 59 of summer, year 1011, after Apotheosis. It rained today. The fleet was withdrawn, so the lands of man are only barely visible on the horizon. Every so often I spot a vessel descend from the heavens to land there, then hours later return to the stars. What awe-inspiring and magnificent sights are there to behold amongst the stars? Perhaps one day my children will see such great things. But for now, we must continue to toil in the dirt. I began to wonder if man understood what they had done here. Did they see us as equals, but enemies of circumstance, or just insects to be brushed away? I will never know such things, but perhaps man can know what we thought of them. After I complete my last entry, I will cast my journal into the sea and let the tides carry it to the land of man. Man, rulers of the star, this is what you did to us. Nairobi Museum Space Exploration, the Lost Expedition Exhibit This document was translated using an 8th generation machine intelligence seeded with the colloquialisms used by the descendants of the Lost Expedition. It was recovered by astronaut Class II Mitchell Larson of the United Nations Spinewood Battle Group III while conducting a search and rescue operation on Kepler-1319AB. This exhibit is dedicated to the men, women, and the intelligent extraterrestrial lifeforms that were killed in the War of the Lost Expedition. End of story.